Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. If you're in the neighborhood, we'd love to meet you. We meet on Sundays at 9.30 and 11.30 a.m. at the Viscardi Center at 201 IU Willits Road in Albertson, New York. Beacon is a non-for-profit, and if you shop Amazon, who doesn't? You can select Beacon Church of Long Island as a supporting organization, and a small portion of every purchase will go to supporting the work at Beacon. Remember to shop at smile.amazon.com and select Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. Thank you and hope to see you soon. So, turtles. I got to tell you, I'm running out of turtle material. I'm just, I keep coming up short. Uh, and so I'm really going to have to do a bit of a stretch with perhaps what is my last one. Anyone know a song by the turtles? Anyone know a song by the turtles? All right, could you sing me a few bars? Come on, sing me a few bars. And in honor of turtles, you get some turtles. Come on, give up, give it up. Join him, help him out here. That's it, that's all I got. Come get your turtles. You did it. You're the best. Thank you. All right. All right, well, that's it. I'm out. No more turtle stuff. So um, let's just pause for an awkward transition. But welcome to our series on getting unstuck. And uh, we're talking about stuck in materialism uh, today. So, you know, when you kind of think back to how you celebrated Christmas when you were young, did you celebrate it kind of big or was your family kind of more they celebrated it a little bit smaller. Um, you know, and I think each of us, we kind of have a tradition that uh, we grew up in. And so my mother, she was big Christmas. Like it couldn't get, you know, there was nothing you could do that would go too big for her. And it was from everything. There were obscene amounts of cookies and pies and candy and, and food. And she would have these like, giant overstuffed stockings, right? Like just things pouring out of them. And I mean, piles or, or like mountains of gifts is what she would want to do. Like, you know, just like this idea of just stocking it so, so high. Now, what I didn't know back then, but my dad has since confirmed that big, crazy, expensive Christmas always led to stressed, argumentative, and fraught with peril New Year in my house. And so if you ask my dad today, he'll say, well, that's why I have no money now, because we always did Big Christmas then. And it's, uh, it's really quite uh, funny to hear him tell the story, but it wasn't funny for him living through those experiences. And of course, uh, being a brilliant person, you would expect that uh, all of us kids would learn our lesson, right? We would say, 
Well, no, we can't do that. That ended, that ended poor. We know New Year's is coming. And so we'd learn our lesson, right? No, we don't learn our lesson. So it is, of course, the season of spending. And it is really, really difficult for me to remember that you don't need big, expensive Christmas for it to be Christmas. In fact, in some ways, it takes away from it. But it started our very first Christmas together as a couple. And so my wife and I, we were newly married. We were still in college, very young. And uh, we were newly married. And uh, I, we decided that we would do Christmas my way, right? And so we did big Christmas. We bought each other big, lots, expensive gifts. And we bought everyone else we knew big, lots of, and expensive gifts. And uh, we ended in January or February with this gigantic amount of debt. And this is our first Christmas. And we were like, what just happened? I can't even believe it. This was the first and only time that Cheryl and I had consumer debt. Like, we, you know, we have debt like a, a house or a car or something. But we, have, we don't carry any. We were so shell-shocked that we went into, like, some sort of panic mode. And we decided we would do whatever it took to pay this off and never, ever, ever do this again. And it is a continual struggle. I think that is the power of materialism. It's a value, what is it? It's a value system that is preoccupied with the pursuit, the collection, the management of stuff. Some people would extend the definition to say it actually even includes the pursuit of the social image that comes along with our stuff. Now, here's the ironic thing. Most everyone realizes, and researchers confirm it, that materialism is both socially destructive and self-destructive. And there isn't a person that you will talk to who has thought about it for more than two minutes who would disagree. It isn't good for the planet, it's not good for society, it's not good for the world's poor, it's not good for the person who actually dies with the most toys. And yet, we do it. A journal called Motivation and Emotion, they say that when people become more materialistic, their well-being, things like good relationships, autonomy, sense of purpose, uh, all of that kind of stuff, rest, all of that diminishes. They become less materialistic, well-being, rises. They just, everyone knows it. They just state it like it's obvious. They have these studies where kids who were taught the dangers of materialism, they saw that their self-esteem would go up, while more materialistic children had their self-esteem go down. Some of you might uh, remember the rich kids of the of, of Instagram thing that was going on. It was popular for a while. I guess for some it still is. This is the super wealthy, the one percenters who are shamelessly displaying their wealth. And it's a whole series of, of uh, pretty bizarre kinds of pictures. You know, kids with like Rolexes up their arms and stuff like that. And anyway, this was one that really kind of caught the attention of a lot of people some time ago. Because they noticed that, look, here she is in the midst of all this incredible wealth and all of this stuff. But the picture has a sort of eerie loneliness to it. There's something disturbing about it. This doesn't look like the height 
of success, happiness, or accomplishment. There's something sad, even, about how the picture came out and how it was received. Well, this was supported by the Journal of Consumer Research, which studied 2,500 people for six years. They found out that there was this kind of two-way relationship between materialism and loneliness. Materialism itself fosters isolation, and isolation in turn causes you to cling more uh, desperately to your stuff, which produces more materialism. And it's a cycle that actually is studyable. The journal, a journal called Neuron, they had researchers that looked into what's going on in the brain as we think about buying things. And they found out that when an image was flashed before people's eyes, that an area of the brain called the nucleus accumbens, you should write that down, that's a key one there. Um, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it right. Anyway, uh, lit up when a, a subject liked what they saw. Essentially, the brain's pleasure center was kicking into high gear and it floods the brain with dopamine at the very thought of getting something that we desire. The weirdest thing about it was that as they were thinking about it, they realized that most of the enjoyment came in the thinking about getting it. There was just that, that experience in and of itself was very powerful. Journal of Psychological Science, in a, in a controlled experiment, uh, they said that people who were repeatedly exposed to images of luxury goods and even to messages that cast the study participants as consumers rather than as citizens, they said that uh, they would use words like buy and status and asset and expensive. And they found out that these people experienced a sudden, immediate, but temporary increase in their material aspirations, as well as anxiety and depression. They also became more competitive and more selfish. They had a reduced sense of social responsibility. Does not surprise you if you ever shopped at the Miracle Mile at Christmas time. But these images, when we're Join, when, we're, when we're hit with these images, you'd say, oh, well, that happens when you're exposed to those kinds of things. But the researchers pointed out that that temporary effect is now constant for us because we're constantly bombarded with these kinds of images and these, this sort of description of who we are in this world. We are best as consumers. And it creates these temporary effects that really end up being triggered more or less continuously in our hearts. Tufts University, they summed it up pretty simply. They said, people who are materialistic have lower personal well-being and psychological health than those who believe that materialistic pursuits are relatively unimportant. And they found that this is true whether you were wealthy or poor, whether you were a teenager or you were elderly, whether you were from Australia to South Korea, they say these, these values that were associated, well, in these ways, they had this undermining of people's well-being. And they had this low satisfaction of happiness. Depression, high. Anxiety, high. Physical problems such as headaches, personality disorders, narcissistic and antisocial behaviors. They just captured a whole lot of the literature and laid it out. How is it we still live 
with this materialistic kind of drive. It seems almost as if we're, we're addicts and we simply can't help ourselves, which, of course, many of the researchers have shown is, in fact, the case. Now, the scriptures, we're in Colossians chapter 3 this morning. Colossians chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verse 5. And what I find so interesting about this particular text is you go through the whole of Colossians, and we've, we've been going through it now for some weeks, so we know that there is uh, this sense of putting Christ at the center of everything, and then there's a sin list, they call it, and they, then they have this house code where they kind of hit everybody in the house and tell them things that they ought to do particularly. But we've got this sin list with all of these sort of, they almost feel like related kinds of sins, but at the very end of it, the Apostle Paul, who's writing this letter to the Christian church in Colossae, he spins it in the direction of our topic here this morning. So chapter 3, verse 5, he says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Greed, which is idolatry. So he takes this idea of greed. And he starts to kind of develop it just a touch for us. It, it reminded me of a story I heard. This little girl, she accompanied her mom to uh, a store, like a five-and-dime type store. And while she was there, her mom was done with her purchasing. She was ready to check out. And uh, the clerk there says to the little girl, he says, hey, why don't you go ahead and help yourself to some candy? they got a big jar of candy here. Reach in, grab a handful of candy. And she kind of takes a step back toward her mom, and she kind of gets a little quiet and she doesn't reach in and, and take a handful of candy. And so the clerk, he doesn't understand. You know, most kids would want to dive right in and, you know, and grab as much as they can. And so uh, she hesitates. And so finally the clerk kind of smiles at her sweetly. And he, he reaches in and he grabs a big old, you know, handful of the candy. And he just pours it right. And she has a little purse thing she's carrying, a little bag. And he just dumps this whole big pile of candy in her bag and so she you know they say thank you and they leave and the mother when they get out to the car she's like honey I don't understand why didn't you you know you're not normally like shy like why didn't you reach in and, and grab some candy when the clerk offered and she said well because his hand is bigger than mine <laughs> I think most of us would commend the little girl for being clever and for figuring out the way to get some more. Now, the book of Timothy, which Paul also wrote, greed is considered the root of all evils, which explains why throughout the scriptures, God says he hates it. In the Psalms, he talks about hating greed. He forbids his people from being greedy, and he promises to punish greed. Greed actually originates in the heart, according to Jesus, Matthew 7, it's never satisfied in the book of Ecclesiastes. When you read it all throughout the scriptures, you find out that greed leads us into foolishness. And that's really according to Paul and others, but it can pull us away from the Christian faith. Elsewhere, you'll find it sort of paired up with lying and stealing and poverty and injustice and even marital problems. It just... It extends into so many other areas, and, in, and it becomes the root of so many other issues. 
Because greed says, if you have a lot, you are a lot. If you have a little, well, then you are little. Shows up in so many painful ways. We might never be content. We're always comparing. We have these, these unexpl- this unexplained desire to possess something. We must own. It's hard for us to even share things anymore. We have to have what another person had. I must make it mine. Which is such an odd impulse. And yet, it's hard for us to resist. Now you can imagine how complicated this gets. When you're talking about, say, a marriage with two people or more with the kids, and they have all of these competing values as to what needs to be purchased and what needs to be possessed and what I have to own and what gives me status. And, and you can imagine the kind of heartache that this can bring into a family unit. Many of you say, I don't have to imagine it. It's my life. Greed is called idolatry. So why idolatry? Why idolatry? It's an interesting kind of a concept. Tim Keller has written this incredible little book called Counterfeit Gods, and it's a, it is well worth the read. If, if any of you haven't read it yet, it is a fantastic read. Uh, if you've read it in the past, read it again. It's amazing. He says in there, what is an idol? It is, any, it is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give, to give you only what to give you what only God can give. What so you know? This is this isn't the picture we have of idolatry. We think of idols. We think of statues and people bowing down to statues and like lighting candles in front of them and that sort of thing. And and Keller's going, no, no, no that's just the physical form of it. But there's idolatry that happens in the heart, and when everything, anything in your life supplants what ought to be your ultimate love, which is God and God alone, then that has become an idol for you. He goes on to explain that the heart, the human heart, is an idol factory, that we, it can't resist making idols out of whatever we find in this life. He says it like this. God was saying that the human heart takes good things like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security, safety, and fulfillment if we attain them. This is why they like and greed to idolatry. Because we want our stuff to give us what only God can give us. And ironically, as I mentioned, everyone knows that we are addicted to stuff. Websites, blogs, psychological magazines, books are published about it. But very few give us any solution to the problem which I really did find ironic. They largely say, listen, here's the deal. We can't really offer you any hope other than try harder not to be materialistic. Thanks. Did that. I did try harder, and I'm still struggling. you got to give me something more. A big shift has happened even in my own life when I started asking, 
how can I just, how can I succeed by just trying harder? That exhausts me. I was reading, a, it was Life Hacker. Here's, here was their great hack. They, they figured this out, right? They said, we all make the mistake of believing that the more money and stuff we have, the happier we'll be. We're, we're all prone to comparing what we have to what our friends and family have and then worrying about how those objects might reflect on us as people. Unfortunately, that's just a recipe for anxiety, depression, and unhappiness. They got it. They figured it out. It is clearly a problem. Thank goodness they offer us a solution in the next paragraph. They say, there's no real trick to preventing yourself from getting caught up in these materialistic values, but it's always good to keep these ideas in the back of your mind when you're out shopping. <laughs> what? Are you kidding me? That's the best you can offer me. You're going to tell me I'm going to be anxious, I'm going to be depressed, I'm going to be unhappy. It's going to wreck my life in so many ways. You're going to say, listen, when you're out shopping, just think, yeah, this might not be good for me. This is going to be great. Super helpful. Here's the problem. You can't get unstuck from materialism using tools that are material. You can't do it. I'd read about a different study. Eleven psychologists collaborated on the first controlled experiment to test whether reducing materialism actually boosts happiness. We know that it reduces, but can you actually enhance happiness? And they found out the same thing, that teens had higher self-images when they were able to reduce materialism. However, they could not, in any of their studies, actually make them better off in general. Even with reducing materialism, they said the program had modest effects on happiness which is a fascinating conclusion because you would have assumed that the correlation was causation. And they're going, no, it wasn't enough. It did promote the teen's self-esteem, but its effect on anxiety was essentially nil. And its effect on life satisfaction was not statistically significant. Well, that's really troubling. The most controlled experiment ends up telling us, yeah, actually, it's not really helping. It's just preventing more harm. But we actually aren't turning the corner here much. See, the world can't beat materialism because its main tools are material. But Jesus, he offers us a way to dislodge materialism from our hearts and to help us get unstuck. You see, we live in two realms. And you can, actually, you can actually choose which realm you will dwell in. So here's a little graphic uh, that uh, we kind of came up with this, uh, this week. It's got uh, on the top, you have God, and on the bottom, you have your stuff. Now kind of picture that, and now turn back into your scriptures with me, and we'll read from chapter 3, verse 3. Kind of see the separate these two separate realms, and now just kind of think through this with me in verse 3. He says, since then you have been raised with Christ. He's putting you in the top realm, the realm of the immaterial. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is. He's seated at the right hand of God. Set your, I'm sorry, this was verse 1. I was wrong. Verse 2, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Verse 3, for you died and your life 
is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So there is a sense in which we are already dwelling in the immaterial world. And something fascinating came up when I was working through this this week. It struck me that when you're a, when you're a philosopher and you're, a, 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 and you're studying theology, you use the word immaterial to mean the thing that is invisible in the soul. But then you contrast that with the material, the physical world. But that's not how most people use immaterial nowadays. If something is immaterial, it's useless. It's not important. And so we almost have to qualify it now because of some unusual thing that has taken place. The immaterial is the spiritual world. The material is the physical world. But we have to, the word itself has gone to to work against us. So now if we use the term immaterial, most people are going to hear, wait, that's the invisible. That's the spiritual. That actually is the useless stuff. That really doesn't matter anymore. That's not what's important. What matters is the, isn't that ironic that the two definitions of this word end up being the spiritual and not so important? That feels like a deep, deep strategy of our enemy to subtly influence the way we view the immaterial world. And yet the scriptures go in exactly the other direction. They say, listen, all of this stuff, you know, your food, your shelter, your clothing, possessions, your money, everything in this physical world, this, is, this, this can all be good stuff. There's nothing wrong with this stuff until, of course, it tries to supplant itself and replace the values of the immaterial world. You know, in fact, we could even show that this stuff in the, in the bottom half is, is actually good stuff from God. You could take each one. Take food, for instance. We think food here is good, it's important, it's a part of our physical lives. Absolutely. Do you know that Jesus promises us a banquet in heaven? He uses this very thing and he goes, yeah, food is good here. I got something so much better for you. A banquet like you've never seen. You go into shelter, you're like, hey, you know what? We have to worry about shelter here. That's a part of our concern. Absolutely. And and Jesus says, listen, don't worry so much about your shelter here because I'm building you a home in heaven. I've gone to prepare a place for you in advance. You go on to your clothing, and we say, here, well, we got to look good. we got to take care of ourselves. we got to make sure that we're, we're well. And Jesus says, absolutely. But listen, don't worry so much about how you are clothed here, because guess what happens in heaven? Garments of white, dazzling. You will be more beautiful than you have ever imagined possible. And you go right down the list. Our possessions. We're like, what do we have? What do we own? What is ours? And God says, Jesus says to us, God says over and over again, he's like, listen, don't worry about your possessions here. You have an eternal inheritance waiting for you that you can actually invest in now. You can invest invest in the physical world. You can take your time, talent, and treasure. And rather than gather up more of this stuff, more food, more shelter, more clothing, more money, rather than pursue all of those things, you can actually see all of them invested in the immaterial, in the spiritual world. And there, they will never decay. They will never rot. They will always return an investment. They will be waiting for you when Christ returns. He tells us that we have to set our minds and our hearts. 
He says that here, and you can kind of think, he says, you should have set your mind on things above. And if you notice on the next slide here, he says, mind, which of course is to think. Think in this context really means to seek. And he says, set your heart, which is your affections. And he's saying, so everything you are, your heart, your mind, set it on the thing that really matters, which is the love of God and people, the only things that last for eternity. And invest all your time, talent, and treasure, all this stuff that we love so much. Let it be a tool that you use to invest in the life to come. Don't let it control you. Because you don't have to cling to material things because your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Can you say that with me? Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Actually, turn to the person next to you and tell them that, please. They need to hear this. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Turn to the other person on your other side. They need to hear it, too. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Do you know how transformative this would be if we could actually know this, if we could remember this, if we could know that that means our real life, our forever life, is not yet fully revealed. We are only living a shadow of our life. It is indeed a mystery, but the real you and the real world is yet to be revealed. It is now hidden in Christ with God. Why do we need to possess things? Well, because secretly we fear that they're slipping away, and so we try to cling and we try to own to give us the security, and God says, yes, they are slipping away but not from you, not for forever. And something much greater is awaiting you. Why do we surround ourselves with so many distractions? Because we sense that our lives are meaningless and we have to extract some sort of happiness out of them for today. But listen, your life is hidden with Christ in God. We're promised eternity and joy and delight. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You see, we get to set our hearts on Christ's promises about reality to get unstuck from materialism here and now. And here's the truth of the whole matter. God's hand is bigger than yours. You don't need to reach out and grab it. You don't need to reach and seize and cling Because God is scooping his hand into all of his promises of joy and delight and meaning and significance. He is scooping his hand in and he's saying, listen, your hands are now empty. Let me fill them up. Let me fill them up for now and for eternity. I'm going to ask the band. They're going to come up and and lead us into the next part of the service. But as they do, I just want to say a word of prayer for us. Would you guys join me in just a, a word of prayer here? Father. What we're, we're asking from you here is that you would give us this eternal perspective. Help us live, even though we live in this physical world, here and now, Lord. Help us to not only dwell here, but instead help us to dwell in that eternal realm, this immaterial, this spiritual, which is so much more important than the world that we currently dwell in. Let us instead see Every day here is an opportunity to take our time and our talent and our treasure and to invest it in 
the world to come. That means investing it in people here. It means pursuing you above all else. It means resisting every type of idolatrous longing in our hearts. That's what we want, Lord. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.